Hello, welcome to the show. We have Jeff Ali. Uh, he's a music composer, and he's from jeffali.com. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Evan. How are you? Good. How about yourself? Great. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi, so tell us about yourself, and what are the kind of things that you do? I work with uh, a lot of music uh, and sound. I create sound for theater, create sound for film, uh, I do live events where I'm creating sound for dance, theater, dance, also a practice known as contact improv, which is primarily a free form exploration of uh, body weight sharing and just basically getting to know your body in the form and within the context of dance. So I play and perform music for dancers who are practicing. It's not really a performance per se, and it's uh, not a performance on their part either it's um their practice and generally that practice is done without music but a lot of the groups that do it they do it every week different places around la and usually once a month or once every couple months they want live music and i'm one of their kind of go-to composer musicians that they like to call and invite so cool is that is that kind of like what people do with yoga where there's a guy on the on his back and you have like the girl yoga person on top and he uses his legs to propel her. Is that kind of the same thing or is it different? It's actually, it would be very similar. Something like that could happen in contact improv where two dancers uh, decide to work together in that, in that capacity. So uh, usually it's less acrobatic um, in nature oh, because... Um, but some some of the dancers are very advanced and they know each other, so it's it's always um, like in a yoga context, for example, the person who is being lifted has to really surrender to the person who's lifting them, and and it would be extremely um, on the part of the lifter. That'd be the guy on his back, for example. In this, in your um, example, he would be responsible for not dropping that person. Whereas in contact improv, the first rule is you take care of yourself. So you wouldn't allow yourself to be lifted unless you were prepared to fall. Obviously, you wouldn't let someone lift you unless you knew they weren't going to drop you as well. So it's getting to right. know each other over time, you know. But the uh, sort of the responsibility is more on the individual and how they interact with everyone else. But you, the same thing could happen. Like visually, you could end up seeing the same sort of thing, um, but for a different reason. Whereas in yoga, it's, it might be about um, stretching and release, um, uh, extending the myofascia, whereas in contact improv, it may be those things as well, but it's more of an exploration of that person uh, moving right. their so, movements. So I've known you for a long time. When did you get into this, and how did you, why, why does this interest you? Well, let me think. Uh, I don't know the exact year, but even before I met you, I had my first experience with contact improv. Okay. And I didn't know what it was. It was just I had been, um, I had I had a lot of different, I guess, say niches of friends, you know, who were interested in all different kinds of topics. And one group of my friends happened to be a dance group, who were really into yoga, meditation, and we'd end up going to things like qigong sessions and meditations, and just kind of like whenever I was free and they happened to call me up, there was a a group that I hang out with and they were really into dance. I wasn't really into dance, but one night we ended up at a contact jam and I participated and it was a lot of fun and I would happen to be with people I trusted. So, you know, Hey, it was great. And 
we jammed some music, we did the thing, and that was just a memory for many, many years. And fast forward, uh, you know, decade or, or maybe more, I don't know, a long time, when I came out to L.A., I uh, met up uh, with a guy, um, uh, he goes by Mystic Pete, he's a radio DJ, and he's also a really wonderful musician, cellist, who does live looping, similar to what I do. And I had been kind of nudging him, hey, let's get together and do something. And, and then he said, you know, I think there's something you might want to check out. And so he brought me to play with him at a contact jam in Santa Monica. And that, um, that opened me up to the, the local people here who were doing contact improv. And he, he just had a sense that I'd be a good fit for it. He actually basically gave me the gig. You know, he, he introduced me and then you know, every time that uh, he got called, he'd actually have me go with him until eventually they just started calling me directly and having me go and play for them. And so years later, you know, I'm, I'm being asked like, so when was the first time you did this? And I'm thinking, you know, well, it was either last month, you know, or two months before or whatever. And, um, or it was many, many years ago. And then I realized, you know, it had sort of come full circle in this interesting, you know, facility, but even, even in the middle, I've been working with sound. Uh, you could call it healing sounds, um, for meditation, for yoga. And so this, this is kind of an evolution, I'd say, in my own uh, interaction with people in a live setting where they're not just an audience, but they're actively participating. And I take cues from them in a the sense. You know, I see how the energy is flowing through the room. I see how much activity is happening. And I play music accordingly, either to bring it up or bring it down or speed it up or slow it down. And I find that very rewarding because the create creatively, you know, I'm just spending like two straight just creating music from scratch, right? Right in that moment, mixing it, recording it, blending it, performing it. Yeah. So, ever since I've known you, I know you've always been a big. You've always been into music, and uh, I've recently started reading a book by a man called Doctor Lipton. I don't know if you're familiar with him. And uh, a little bit familiar, yeah. Yeah, so what's interesting, it reminds me of, uh, I always wanted to ask you this question after I finished reading his book or I finished watching his videos. He makes this connection between vibration and the way that cells work and the epigenetics and genes and how they turn off and on based on the, the receptors that we have in our cells. And what do you think about that connection between music and life and the material world and, and all that kind of stuff? Are you, do you have any insight on that? Yeah, I think he's onto something for sure. Um, there's, I feel like it's it goes so deep. You know, there's so many layers and levels. It's it's like a cosmic onion that you just want to keep on peeling and, and right. seeing where it leads to. Um, for example, you know, if you walk into a room and there's no music playing, um, you still feel the vibe of the room based on the presence of whoever's there or whoever's not there, or whoever may have recently been there. Right. It's almost like our energetically, we, we're, we're broadcasting these frequencies and some of those frequencies feel good and some don't feel so good. Right. Uh, some things we, we, uh, you know, resonate with us like in a, in an energetic way and some things make us sleepy, for example, and all those things could be good and bad. It could be things to challenge us or things to calm us down when we need to. And music is, you know, can be on a very superficial, like, obviously, if you have like a pump and dance beat, it's going to make you kind of move. 
and then you have something that's more like languid, um, maybe sorrowful sounding, you know. So those are sort of the extremes where you have this just pure energy of the heart radiating magnetically and filling a room even after the person's left versus just very physical based, the vibrations of the music that's happening. And somewhere in between, there's a whole vast universe where you can explore, you know, how, like, like what you mentioned with Dr. Lipton, like how it affects us on an epigenetic level. So if music puts us into a good mood, you know, does that promote healing? You know, if music allows us to relax, does that promote healing? And I say yes, um, because it's something that's known throughout culture that deep relaxation is part of healing, part of the, the whole process of healing. It's less the medicines that we give somebody for the supposed ailment versus being able to make that person comfortable and relaxed and feel um, that they're in good hands. Often, you know, you go see a doctor. I don't know if you've had this experience, but that doctor can just be a regular doctor. But by going to them and them saying, yeah, it's okay, all of a sudden you start feeling better. I've actually had the experience where I go to a doctor and I'm in the waiting room and I already start feeling better. Actually, Dr. Lipton uses that exact example in one of his talks, but in reverse. In other words, oh. <laughs> the doctor says the doctor says to the patient, you have cancer and you have 30 days to live. And the patient believes it and actually dies within that time. And so he makes a connection between what we believe in our thoughts and what we actually manifest in reality. And so yeah. by using, you know. And the power of that doctor, right? right. The power that he has with his words, what, well, whatever he chooses to say. Not only that, his authority by using the, the white lab coat and, you know, mm -hmm. the perceived authority and all that put together with his words kind of sends a message to the patient you know, they have a limited time to live and they believe it and they manifest that reality. And in a way, you know, words are sound and through these sounds manifest the realities of other people through the communication of them. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can go to like Tesla or Einstein or many other, you know, big thinkers of the past few centuries and uh, all the way back to Pythagoras, you know, and they basically everything is vibration. So, right. and language is, you know, I don't know if codification is the right word, but it's it's a symbolic form of those vibrations. And although the specific sound relation to creation may have changed over time, the meaning is still it's it's part of our collective understanding that up means that way, right. down means that way. So even if maybe in the, the the maybe there's a sound for up, like well, I'm not even going to try to make one, but right. maybe in the, you know, uh, an older language, like one of the original languages, maybe the sound that we made for up really created the essence of up right, or down and over the years. Um, but I think humans, uh, we adapt to, even though the language may have changed and been subverted even intentionally, you know, um, just hidden, hidden words, you know, right. people like to point out things like dis-ease, disease and you oh, know. wow. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. There's a lot of those um, uh, where we're just saying things, and but yet we don't necessarily connect the two together um, consciously. Right. So we're being, we're being kind of bombarded, you could say, on a subconscious level by so many things that are surrounding us. And Right. And add to that the additional layer of how words can be co-opted and the meaning of them changed over time to mean something else. Yeah, totally. Uh, 
government. Right. Uh, government governing of the mind. So we think of government as, as sort of a utilitarian like a utilitarian function. Like, right. okay, we need somebody to manage sweeping the streets and and making sure the water is flowing and, and you know, providing basic security if people really go out of bounds. And so collectively we say, yeah, we should have a government and we'll elect some people to manage that and we'll all contribute some money to it. Um, you know, begrudgingly, but we'll, we will, you know, pay our tax and, right. and there we have, you know, government and then, but we don't realize that all along it's been, you know, a, basically a mind control. Right. <laughs> we've been, we've been giving, giving in, giving into the notion that government is good and I'm not anti-government per se. It's just, I think people need to be aware of what it is. It is. Right. Yeah. That's why I think it's very important to, you know, routinely check the definition of words on your own in a way where you're up to date with what they actually mean because uh what well like you said government what government means really is like the government of a mind of the minds and but people have a different perception of the government based on how they interface with them for example if you're a person who's going to get a welfare check you know your relationship to that word is very different from a person who actually works in the government uh, to a person who's actually uh, works for the government, even, and um, so it's definitely. A I think that's actually a really perfect example of what you said. We have to see how we're, you know how words change. The meaning right. of them is being changed and manipulated, because I think whether you're receiving welfare check or whether you're just a, a person in society who knows they exist and going out to other people, I think even if you really believe in social welfare in that in the way that it's managed even if you're really for it i think you still have a negative connotation about the word itself right. um when that word should actually be always a positive message like welfare you know right <laughs> i mean it shouldn't it shouldn't have any negative connotation but over the years it, it sort of has and i don't think it's been only because of the people who are against welfare perception Right. I mean, per se, I think it's collectively it's it's been manipulated um, or, or just sort of the connotation has become so thick with, oh, somebody who can't take care of themselves, right. you know, oh, somebody down on their luck, you know, and then we judge what that means or, um, you know, what they are instead of just seeing each person as an individual, you know, and um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, com coming to it from a perspective as a as a software engineer. I kind of see words as placeholder variable names, right? So, uh, the word government or welfare is just—it's just like a—it's just like a placeholder for the meaning of something, and whatever that means, is whatever the the dominant idea of what that word means is. So it's almost like a a variable that there's a there's a there's a variable that's a variable that's reflected by other variables. In other words, you have a variable with a placeholder of for a name or for a meaning. And then based on other variables, it reflects the meaning of what the placeholder is kind of being a placeholder for, if that makes any sense. Kind of, kind of. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a perfect example of why we always should go back to the original definition and the original ep ep epitomology. Gosh, I'm bad with words sometimes. But the, you know, where does that <laughs> I always word get come mixed from? up with that word. So the, the word that comes, you know, where does it come from? It comes from some Greek or it comes from some Latin. Right. Or even if you can translate it to the original 
Latin that it comes from, even if it's not, you know, a Latin based word, but they know that that's where that word came from. And then you go and and you dig into it and you, and you see what that meaning is. Like government comes from, you know, understanding the word government, you you might just go over your head, government, you know, we don't think of meant as mental, you know, or mind, but, um, that's a that's a really good example. And but what I what I did grasp from what you said, it went a little over my head. But um, the part that is that it's relational, you know, like it's it's contextual. So what words um, affect are acting on that particular variable? Which variables are acting on it in that given moment exactly. gives that variable its meaning and essentially helps it to realize its purpose in that moment or for that particular part of your program. Right. Right. So I, I'm going to try to hold this book up because it's kind of a... Oh, wow. So the book is called The Yoga of Sound by okay. Russell Paul. Amazing book. Why I had it handy was I wanted to uh, share that I'm actually working on writing what is, what is essentially a, a very extended chapter. This whole book is about sound, uh, sound healing, sound yoga, not yoga, um, and how it... Um, how it manifests in different practices. So he talks about, you know, different, you could say, sects of yoga that um, use um, sound in different ways, um, devotionally or meditatively. Well, it's all, it's all, the goal is all of its meditation in some capacity. Okay. But it's kind of like, you know, if you went to church and they were playing some very um, beautiful Bach, um, you know, um, very melodious, I mean, you know, harmonically pleasing, relaxing um, music on the organ as you walk in versus um, gospel, very upbeat music where people are, are, it's call and response and, you know, it's very energetic and it's, so you have like this sort of, it's all in the context of worship, you could say, but it's, 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 it's external way is different. So he, he deals with that chapter by chapter. And also his own dis- his own sort of you know realizations and discoveries about yoga and sound, and I came to really love this book, um, and I found that you know a whole book could be written on just his I guess it's chapter ten he has it labels Nada Yoga, which is basically sound yoga, and it's the point in where yoga will actually cross over into music specifically the science behind the music. So in Western music, we have um, a language to communicate the meaning of music called music theory. But any music from out, throughout the world can be analyzed and sort of objectively um, understood through the, the study of music theory. Let me ask you one thing. If, if music can change people's mood... Is it fair to say that music should be used uh, in psychiatry to help with the therapy of people with mental illnesses? Um, yes, I think I could be wrong, but I think you mean like psychology? Right. Um, because psychiatry, I think they default right, psychiatry. to drugs. Right, but you Don't know, they, yeah. right, but psychology but, is usually like talk, uh, talk therapy, yeah. and things like that. But psychiatry 
is usually where they administer drugs. Oh, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. okay. I just okay, good, so, yeah, okay. Then so, I yeah, understand so, your question. Right, so I just want so to be sure a, that's what you're a, asking. Right, so it would be a tool yeah. in a psychiatrist armor other than drugs to use. Like oh, music. then absolutely. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I would. I would. Uh, I think that would be an amazing, amazing place to start because the simple fact is, is music will change the person's chemical. Does happen, and that that is. Um, like I said, you know, that's just on the very superficial level of change. You know, it's very momentary. It's very, like, in the moment, you know, you feel a beat, you want to dance, you know. Right. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's close on that level. Um, but, you know, instead of, re, you know, instead of only relying on drug, if they could find a way to, to use music um, to minimize that that would be terrific, and I'm sure they could still get lots of research dollars for that um, as an experiment. You know, what sort of sounds and what sort of frequencies, what combinations of frequencies, what patterns, um, tempos, rhythms, a tempo. You know, things that are memorable versus things that are not memorable. Right. Um, all of these things, I think, affect us on a psychological, you know, emotional level. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I, there, there is a type of music that I don't particularly wish I liked, but for some reason has a psychological effect on me. A lot of people that love this kind of music cringe when I tell them I like this kind of music only for its utilitarian usage <laughs> of relaxing me and putting mm -hmm. me in a really good mood. And it's smooth jazz. <laughs> Real <laughs> ja I know, see, you laughed. Lots of jazz people well, you know, cringe at the idea that I would ever listen to smooth jazz. And I, don't, I wish I did not like smooth jazz because it's... it's it's not cool. It's not trendy. It's not cool. You know, sometimes we all want to be cool. But I, I, I put it in my house when I'm alone in a private setting. <laughs> I actually play smooth <laughs> jazz, and it makes me feel really good. Well, uh, you know, smooth jazz should make you feel good because there's all the right elements are there. The, the attention to detail in the production in terms of making sounds have a clarity to them Right. which kind of, you know, goes through your environment and energizes you. The attention on up uplifting melodic phrasing, right. uplifting like rhythmic the major phrasing. Yeah. yeah, there's there's well there's lots of other modes besides the major that they'll use in smooth jazz, but it tends to not be dark music. What is the scale uh, used for smooth jazz? Like Phrygian scale or Mixolydian, Mixolydian. and and Lydian are very popular. Um, Dorian uh, as is in a lot of things, um, they'll often you know shift between a Mixolydian and then to a Dorian, um, but you know, but smooth jazz is is sometimes a, not as um, well. It's modal in the sense that it it's it's kind of stays within a key and it just sort of modulates here and there. Right. Uh, whereas you know, uh, bebop or something more from that tradition, you know, it's it's like it's constantly changing and. You know, I actually chuckled when you first said it, not because of what you thought I was chuckling. I was thinking of like how Miles Davis was like cool jazz, right. you know, and his stuff was essentially like the beginnings. I know people want to hang me up for this, but you know, <laughs> yeah. it's like it's like it's like he was the beginnings of that that notion of almost you know I want to say pop, a more pop sound in a way, right? Um, with some of his works, you know. Um, that doesn't take anything away from his artistry um, in terms of like how deep he was always thinking musically. Right. Uh, but I think a lot of people who went that route probably, 
you know, they probably listened to Kind of Blue uh, a lot. You know, I mean, it was that was my jazz album go to for the longest time because I under I could understand it musically um, way better than you know, say Charlie Parker, you know, who I love, but I I I couldn't I can't play Charlie Parker. Hate to admit it, I just I can't I I can't play that kind of bebop style on guitar. I just my brain doesn't work fast enough. Right, right. And uh, you're you're Los Angeles based, right? That is correct. Okay. Studio Village. Studio Village is that what it's called? <laughs> yep. Where is that? It's in Culver City. Oh, Culver City. Okay. Um, so that... we have Studio City um, near Universal, which is right. where all the big studios are, right. and then we have Studio Village because Sony. And Culver, Culver Studios are right oh, down right the street from right, here. Right across the theater. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's another part of uh, Culver City that has lots of studios. Do you know where Jefferson is back there? It's, it seems it looks kind yep. of like a like an industrial area, but it's all it's yep. all been converted to like the studios. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, also Google, uh, YouTube Studios just down the road. Just it's not technically in Culver City. As far as I know, but it's like right adjacent to Culver City, just down the road from here, um, where you know they have a lot of things going on there. That's for sure. Cool. How do you Got like Dolby, living there? Dolby down the road. I love it. Culver City is a wonderful place to live. It is. It's it really is. beautiful. It is a beautiful place, definitely. So I've always wanted to ask you the question about, and it's it's the underlying theory be, uh, behind the epigenetics, the idea that uh, you know we're we're not kind of like locked into what our genes are that are passed down from our parents. But through epigenetics or through behavioral changes, we could change how the genes are expressed. And a big component of that is sound. And what, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, it's an extremely fascinating topic. And uh, I, I saw, I wish I could reference the exact creator of this video. Um, it was, it's an animated version of how cells duplicate. And it goes down to the, um, I guess, micro cellular. It goes all the way down to what the genes are doing when they need to replicate the, the DNA strand. And the animation looks like an assembly, like factory. And it has, you know, all the workers and all the mechanics going on. And then it has these other really interesting characters that creep in that are basically error correction. Um, parts of the the whole um, mechanics of of this, and then there's, you know, even like there might be like one thing going along the the DNA strand that's doing one operation, and then another one comes popping along, and it just sort of hops over the other one. And so this animation is is meant to be an, a literal example. Like we can't see that small, but I guess the the biologists understand it. Right? Are you talking and about when uh, when RNA replicates DNA? Like yeah, a, some, right. some, something like that. Yeah, okay. and and so I bring that up because you know just being able to see it in that in that way it makes you think like, wow, these are so small. Like, how can it not be that a sound wave or a light wave couldn't manipulate that in some fashion? Right. You know, um, either helping it along to stay, you know, error free or causing errors for that matter. You know. Um, you know, so I, I, I wonder, you know, it kind of, because I'm interested in sound and how sound could be used in healing sense as well. Right. I mean, I've, I've also read that the earth creates a pulse that's 
that we as human beings cannot hear. Kind of like a dog whistles when you when you whistle at a dog through these special instruments, only dogs can hear and humans can't. Apparently, the Earth creates a pulse. That do you do you happen to know like the frequency range of that pulse? Is I don't. It? I don't. But I remember reading where the theory is that Earth creates a pulse, and that pulse is actually what animates our hearts and all the hearts on the planet, which would be kind of strange. And it wouldn't make sense because if it would be one pulse, that means all hearts would beat at the same time. And I don't know if hearts beat uh, in, like in a different sequence than others, but it's an interesting theory. What do you think about that? I'd have to look it up more. Um, okay. I think there's definitely, a, there definitely I'm, I'm almost sure there's a connection between the, the energetic aspect of our heart and the, the Earth's own frequencies and resonances. Um, I'm not sure if it's as one-to-one um, -one causal, like, okay, it pulses at 60 beats right. per minute and our heart beats at 60, but, right. but that there's the underlying, because think of it as a string. You know, if you have a string and you strike the string, along that string it is, is many sub-frequencies that are then divided, right? right? And it's the quality and character and, and mix of all of them that gives us the, the sound of that, oh, that's a metal string or that's a nylon string or that's a cello string, you know, versus a bass string. Um, and any kind of instrument, you know, that you can make noise with has a different timbral quality to it. So when we hear, what, what, you know. What did you say, timbral? Timbral. Timbral. What does that mean, yeah. like a tambourine? No, like the <laughs> yeah. like the the sound quality, like you know, even a person's voice, like the difference between kind your like voice tone. and my voice. Yeah. Okay. The the, the tonal. The, the it's it's like the mixture of tones. So within your voice, you have many tones, but with, where there are certain frequencies that might spike. If you were looking at a little graph of EQ, you'd see like maybe yours has a little more in this range, and mine has more in this range, and somebody else might be more in this. Right. You know, even though we're saying the same words, we still, there's that little bit of character. And so each instrument has that. And I think um, I got off track a little bit uh, from... Oh, I was just asking what that word meant because uh, I've never heard that word before. Um, yeah, so you were talking about how each each string has a different... Oh, vibrate, right, yeah. okay. And how it wouldn't be a one-to-one -to, -one to the earth, but right. maybe so, there could be something so, like that. Yeah, and so what I was getting at then is the, the next is, I guess, the mechanical resonance of, for example, if you had a guitar and you have that string and you pluck it, the, the guitar kind of resonates. I mean, the guitar does resonate. Right. It doesn't kind of resonate. It right. resonates. And based on the wood, mainly the, the – well, I'm, I'm holding it this way as if I took a guitar and flipped okay. it up towards you. But like the front part that's facing the audience, per se, that's called the soundboard. And that's made of thin wood. It's designed a certain way so that when you strike the strings, it vibrates. Right. And then it, it is what projects the sound out so you can hear the strings. The strings are barely audible, but what comes out is a combination of the strings resonating and the wood resonating so, and together. So what I'm saying is like you have like the, our heart resonating and the earth resonating, and then the interference between them creates something. Right, so it's almost like it's almost like the earth is a soundboard, and when the sound's projected, the strings of billions of hearts around the planet are chime in a way. That's beautiful and poetic. Thank I'd you. almost have said it. The, I would have almost said it the opposite, you know. Um, and I think that you both can be true. Is that you know it's it's uh, yeah, but I, I think you know, yeah, that's really cool. 
<laughs> Thanks. Yeah, but that's that's kind of like the the visual I got when you when you mentioned it that way. You put it together that way, and uh, yeah, because the string, the, the main strings, right, is the earth. Right. We don't really hear it. Right. Until it's it gets projected out right. through us. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So and and so that's that's the uh, is that is that the same thing that I believe that string theorists talk about how how reality is. The fiber of reality is really a series and a combination of different strings and sound vibrations. I think string theory and sound vibration must have some relationship. I don't know where they where they cross over, except that I once had a very funny um, argument with a friend. I said, "Sound and light are the same thing, basically." You know, and he he argued, "No, that's not true." You know, and and I kept giving him the analogy, well, if you slow sound, if you slow light down enough, the, the frequencies, eventually it's going to be going so slow, it'll be sound. And he's like, oh no, it just doesn't work that way. You know? But the funny thing is, is fast forward a, about a decade after we had this conversation and, you know, many leading physicists use a very similar analogy to describe the continuum between, you know, sound and what's audible and what's visual, you know, crossing over. Right, and I'm still I'm still kind of oversimplifying it, but my my point being is that there's a connection, and you know uh, there's a connection between the two. There's it's no, I'd say there's no accident that they both rely on frequency, in in the form of vibration, happening, you know within within the, the realm of time and space, right. that causes causes everything we see and hear and feel and touch, to to you know, be noticeable to us. Right. It's like if something wasn't moving, we wouldn't be able to see it. Right. We wouldn't be able to feel it. It, it So it literally wouldn't exist. I think in the quantum or the string theory realm, you could say like, if it's not moving, it doesn't exist. Like, right. In a way, it kind of adds like, you know, if, if we knew, if we come to know that, that sounds are so powerful and they are factors in the building blocks of creating reality, then words are important that we that we that we speak that we utter words that we utter to others are very important because they actually have a destructive and creative uh power to them and uh what do you think about that yeah absolutely uh i i would say you know even knowing that it's so easy to just to say something that doesn't need to be said. I think there's that, you know, hear no evil, see no evil, like speak no evil, right? There's there's these kind of concepts, right? Right. But like when you when you filter what you're gonna say uh through sort of the, you know, is it necessary, is it kind, right? Um you know, there's there's less to say, you know. <laughs> it's because then you're like, well, is it necessary? Right. You know. Exactly. But you know, at least is it kind? And and I think even if you're dealing with a really good friend, it's always good to really be conscious of what you say to them because they're open up. They're like, a, they're completely opened up to you. Like you know, their receptor. heart is complete. Right. Yeah. They're like ready to receive whatever you say. And no matter how you phrase it, if you're not really with a lot of care, and I don't mean being afraid while you're saying it, but, but careful, really full of care, um, you can deliver a message that might seem harsh otherwise right. that helps them shifts them into another place um but the the whole mechanics of that especially when we're dealing with people's subconscious is we have so much stuff in our subconscious that we we want to clear it out you know we we want to clear out our subconscious so we can be free 
but the reality is it, it gets filled up quicker than we can get rid of the stuff. Right. So if our best friends are throwing junk in there, you know, on top of the other junk, <laughs> you know, they're not helping, even though they they want to help. But, you know, I think our subconscious is incredibly powerful. Right. And something that I, I've always been interested in this topic of NLP. Oh, neuro-linguistic uh, programming. Wow. But I, I haven't, I haven't, heard but that I haven't word really studied it. You know, I wouldn't, I'm not a practitioner. I'm not, I'm not, I'm just a, you know, a novice interest, you know, sort of a, a window shopper right. of NLP, you know? Um, but that, that being said, um, I, I think as I go forward in life, you know, I realize like, wow, you know, like the first time I heard that word, I wish I had delved into it deeper because I think you, it, it forces you to understand your language right. first and foremost. It, it forces you to work on yourself. It's kind of like people who are hypnotists or therapists, um, you know, they, they often get a chance to work on themselves a lot. Because if they're really conscious about what they're doing, if they're like, wow, I want to help people, right. they want to learn how they operate. You know, if they're going to mess with somebody's mind, and I don't mean mess in a bad way, but if they're going to be... Could be NLP could definitely be used in a bad way. It's often been categorized under a dark psychology. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's actually, see, that brings up a really good point. I think that's why I didn't mess with it, because I, I, I felt that it was mostly used by people who are just trying to manipulate others to, to make more sales or, right. you know, or just sell something that really was unnecessary. It kind of goes to like, okay, great. I could, you know, make a bazillion dollars doing X, Y, Z, but is that really making the world better just because, right. Right. you know, like, I mean, I'll be happier, but right. you know, is that, is that my highest calling? Right. Um, but I never, I, I didn't realize that a lot of, this is, Fun fact, you know, I didn't realize the, the deep connection between hypnosis and NLP. I didn't realize the two were, you know, almost, you know, as far as practitioners of one or the other, it's almost synonymous, you right. know, it, it maybe, you know, um, you know, I, I knew they're related, but I didn't realize that most people who go into one or the other end up studying both, you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know too much about it, but I've, I've read some of it. And it's a definitely very fascinating uh, technique. And the only reason it's fascinating to me is because it kind of it kind of like opens a hood uh, and sheds a light onto how the brain absorbs information and how we interface with reality. That's in in that aspect, it's very interesting. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, I'm not sure. I'm just guessing. Actually, um, if you were to watch really, really good actors um, perform. You know, you study them from an NLP point of view. I think you'd see um, that they just kind of intuitively know. Right. You know, how to, how to uh, you know, mesmerize, basically hypnotize the audience, draw them in. Right. You know, where are their, where are their cadences, you know, how they do things, how they move, you know, Right, it's that it's, they just know how theatrical. to do those things. Right, it's very theatrical. Yeah, yeah. and uh, but they do it in a way where it just looks so natural that we just we fall into the illusion that these characters are real on the screen, whereas maybe somebody on the stage speaking, like, well, I hate to use Tony Robbins as an example. Actually, I was he's thinking really about good. Tony Robbins too. Yeah, but but people who fall into that, you know, under him, you know, across the board, who are on stage doing motivational speaking or right. or and you know similar self help. Um, 
self-help is sort of a misnomer, right? If, <laughs> what's a joke? If you need self-help, why would there be a, a book? Why am I going to read somebody else's book? Yeah. <laughs> if it's self-help, <laughs> you know, that self-help section. But um, anyway, self-improvement, you know, hey, you know, like it's, you know, what else are you going to call it, right? But, um, but you can see the mechanics that like some people, they will repeat. And if you watch the same uh, music artists perform um, night after night, you'll see that the things that looked very spontaneous were often... Hundred percent staged, right? You know, from night to night, um, right? And the re- right, and the audience not, of an NLP yeah. practitioner the first time around is not aware of that because it's the first time they've gotten hit with it in a way. Yeah, for lack and, of a and, word. Yeah, and often even the second, third, fourth time they still aren't because they now they're essentially under that hypnotic. You know, they're they're already attuned to what that person is, um, right. or for lack of a better word, selling. You know, what it right. is that they're conveying that the you know, and, and they're okay with it. They, they, if they come back a second time, it's not because they were hypnotized into coming back. They're, they're coming back because they actually got value and they, you know, they went back into their life, whatever it is. And they're like, I'm going to go back to the next event this guy's doing because right. or, or, I my mean, life is improving in some, in some capacity. Or you could even get even more Machiavellian and say that what they're selling, the NLP practitioner has, uh, suggested to them is a value and uh, and they've changed their their value hierarchy to want their product to want his product and then the person comes again oh sure i mean yeah that's absolutely that's absolutely happening and you know i have uh you know many sub sub professions in what i do i yeah. do sound what's called sound healing i work with yoga teachers uh on a you know uh, it's sort of cyclical but you know, I've done literally hundreds of sound baths. Those are experiences where people are basically just laying out and just experiencing sound of gongs, um, singing bowls. They're not just, actually taking a bath. It's like a, just a sound bath. Yeah, just the sound is, is, is immersing them. And so somebody coined the term sound bath for that. It's often in a yoga class at the end you have what's called shavasana where you lay in what's called dead body pose. Literally, you just lie there in, in, in stillness. Mm. And so all the action movement, now you're sort of integrating it um, in the final, in the final, uh, posture, which is considered the most important posture. And ironically, many yoga studios, they do like Shavasana for like two or three minutes or five minutes. And a lot of people I've seen yoga classes where people don't even stay for Shavasana. And it's like, you're missing the best part. You know, <laughs> this is where your body relaxes and you're just teeter on the edge of sleep, which I want to talk about, um, maybe a little later when I get, you know, back to it. But um, what I was saying is I, I work in many professions and one of them is also, since I'm a musician and composer and music producer, yeah. I have to wear all these hats. Um, I've also learned quite a bit about stage, sound, lighting. Um, so I also work as a, a audiovisual technician. So I see and experience a, a wide range of events that, you know, I'm part of the production team putting on. And usually my role is, is very simply, uh, providing sound or the visual projection. I'm not necessarily creating the event. And so I'll be at these sort of high energy, motivational, um, business entrepreneur combo type of events. And so I see kind of the behind the scenes. I see, you know, the element of hype, you know, um, I, I see, you know, what's going on, you know, so there's definitely that, that element you know, in the end, if somebody says, I, I really want to make more money in life and they go to one of these events and then they start making more money, it's, you know, it's because they're doing the right things. Exactly. And if that, 
if going to that event helps them, then great. If going to that event is just putting them further into debt, then probably they're being taken advantage. And uh, you know, I would wouldn't doubt if there's more of that. But that being said, I the general feeling that I get is people who are selling positive messages seem to be genuine. Oh, definitely. You know, um, I think the majority of the people out there. Um, even if somebody wants to critic, critique it as snake oil or whatever, I think that gen- generally Those are most the pessimists. Yeah, they're the real pessimists. But even if you look through the pessimist glass, you can see, but the results are good. And the person is not knowingly selling something that is not 100% true. It'd be like if I went up there and said, I know, like, I don't know the science of epigenetics, I just know the concept. Okay. But if I went up on stage and said, you know, you can heal yourself by thinking positively. And if I was able to convey that with a depth, like as if I was an expert, um, or not, not, mis- not misleading people that I'm an expert, just co- giving them the confidence, like uh, right. earlier session mentioned the, the doctor in the lab coat. Right, give if me, somehow, right projecting yeah, the authority on the subject. Yeah, if somehow they just, you know, oh, that's true, and it resonated with them. It, and whatever I had to do in that production, if it was flashy lights and music and dancing and Hugging, you know, your neighbor and, and, you know, it could be any, any mismatch of all the things you've ever seen at these events, but people went home and they started living a more positive mindset on it and, and catching themselves when they were in negativity and they actually lived a more vibrant life Then, okay, I didn't know what the heck I was talking about. I was just going by intuition, right. but maybe that's part of it too, is that our intuitions need to be set loose, you know, our, and, um, so yeah, so I I was kind of going back and forth between the the fact that I've seen, you know, sort of I don't want to say that I haven't seen the dark side per se. I just seen like that yeah, I mean there's well there's kind of there's something behind the curtain that's right. No, well, that if revealed to the regular people. But I've right. been behind the curtain and I see how these people interact at no, these no. very and they right. interact beautifully with each other. Yeah, so and an, an LP is like a neutral tool, right? I mean, it could be used for good and bad. I mean, like a, yeah. like a like a gun. It could be used to defend yourself, or it could be used to like commit a crime. NLP, in a way, it's considered by pessimists to be a dark psychology, but it's really just a neutral tool that anyone could have access to, and, yeah. and you know, and then help people out or help themselves out or anything. But yeah, no, like people like Tony Robbins or even before him, like Jim Rohn and others, definitely use that technique. I believe Tony Robbins even has like a, a lecture on that. Um, and it's, uh, it's a pretty interesting subject for sure. Yeah. What I'm really amazed at is like, I, I get the sense that a lot of the people who are high performers in the, in the sense, like they, they're able to attract crowd, um, through their hard work, they find time to study. Like they're always doing something to improve themselves. And so much of it is related to the mind. Um, willpower. Yeah. I want to see. I'm thinking it's Dale Carnegie. I'm trying to think. Um, yes, yeah, so D- Dale Carnegie was an industrialist, and he he actually had uh, he he inspired lots of people to write books. Like there's a there's a very famous book called Think, Think. and Grow Rich. Yeah, and actually they they have a, a chapter in there that talks about something called auto suggestion, mm-hmm. uh, where in a way it's like where you kind of like NLP yourself, your neuro linguistic program yourself. Through yeah. incantations and, med- and repetitive meditations, and yeah. so yeah, Carnegie definitely um, inspired lots of these authors for sure. And be- I, I, I've I've stumbled upon um, 
I have uh, what do I have? Apple TV. Okay. I have an Apple TV, and so sometimes it's it's just nice to just put YouTube on Apple TV just to get away from the computer, but I still want to get my you know random dose of information. Yeah. And strangely, I don't know why. Um, I mean, I know I'm I'm not logged in, but somehow I'd get all these really cool videos popping up. And so I decided, like, I want to see how far YouTube can, you know, keep suggesting interesting things to me and find out if they end up uh, suggesting the same kinds of things that my logged-in version on my computer. Of course, they can track by IP and all those things, too, so maybe it's not a mystery. Yeah, but, but it's, a, it's a behavioral signature yeah. that, they're, that their algorithm yeah. is attached to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, they show me something. If I watch it and I watch another one, then they, they kind of figure, oh, you probably like that. But I'm not actually liking anything because I'm not logged in. Right. But things like... Um, uh, Dr. Lipton, uh, Bruce Lipton came up. Things like the the, the Dale Carnegie talks. Um, things on NLP popped up, and um, and a few other you know sort of related topics. And one of the um, one of the videos that I found very, I wish I could tell the title of it. I I would recommend it to people to watch. It says something something along the lines of, "Do this for thirty minutes every day, and it'll change your life." It's it's something titled something along that line. And it's a Dale Carnegie talk where where he talks about a conversation he had had with somebody else, and this other person was asked, "What's wrong, you know, with with men?" And of course, it's dated, you know, because probably today people, say, what's wrong with people? <laughs> but back back when he was around, it was it was the the male, you know, household figure was uh, the man was going off to work and the woman was home, you know, taking care of the the home. And, you know, so it said, what's wrong with men today? But, you know, it doesn't matter um, uh, if it's men and men means man. But they were talking men. Um, spent too much time on that. But mainly, he's like, well, men don't think. 